0: Welcome to the Real Self University podcast. I'm Eva Shea, Director of Practice Development at Real Self. The mission of this podcast is to uncover stories and data from our industry's most interesting and successful personalities, both doctors and the people who contribute to their success behind the scenes. On this episode, I've invited Real Self verified facial plastic surgeon Cameron Chestnut to give us an inside look at the rapid growth of his practice in Spokane, Washington. Today's guest is Dr. Cameron Chestnut. He practices out of Spokane, Washington, and he's a longtime Real Self user who we rely on for our Real Self Business Advisory Board right now. And I'm super excited to have him today because he has a lot to say about some pretty hot issues. Dr. Chestnut, would you just give us a little background about where you are, why you chose to go back to Spokane, and Give us a feel for how you think about
1: the world. Yeah, great. That's a really great question. You know, I grew up in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, which is just across the border from Spokane. My wife and I both grew up there. We're high school sweethearts. And we kind of knew that at some point in our journey, we'd end up back in that area in the Pacific Northwest and went out and did training in, you know, Seattle and Los Angeles and loved both of those places and, you know, home called. And we had our first child in LA and went back up to the Northwest be around grandmas and to you know, be back in the community that we grew up in. It's a great place to live.
0: So you have three little kids. What kind of secrets do you have to share with us around how you save time during the day so that you can do what's important?
1: Yeah, that's a really great question. We were just kind of talking about life being measured in missed bedtimes or soccer games or whatever that is. And my oldest is five, so I'm just starting to get into a life where You know, his schedule dictates a little bit of what we have going on, which is kind of a new thing with, you know, kindergarten happening. But it's really prioritizing. And I made a really conscious effort early on in my career to say this is what I want my practice to be like. And I scheduled aggressively in that direction. I didn't kind of just take everything that came and was busy to be busy. I sort of set my eyes on my objective of here's what I want it to look like in five years, which is where I'm at now, or 10 years down the road. And uh, pursued that to a point where it worked out really well. And so now I have the ability to, you know, work four days a week, coach soccer, make it home for dinner. I still have long days and things like that, but it's easier to swallow when you know that you're going to have that other dedicated time with them.
0: So distill five years into a couple of sentences for us. How did you get from the beginning to that four-day-a-week point?
1: Yeah, I started at four days and change a week, about you know, maybe four and a half with that in mind, knowing that I didn't want to start broad and have to whittle down, that I really wanted to concentrate, you know, kind of have the cream of the crop or there's the 80-20 rule of life that 80% of your happiness happens with this 20% of things. And I really wanted to focus on those things that I wanted to do. And so I pursued those at the beginning and worked really hard to be good at those small number of things that I wanted to do. When I wasn't doing those, I learned how to get better at them or how to get more of them in my practice and kind of stuck with that from the very beginning and then quickly went from four and a half to four days when I sort of was hitting my stride a little bit. And of course, that takes time. You know, that first year was a very reconstructive heavy for me with skin cancer, which is great learning experience and very fulfilling. So you kind of kick it off right off the bat with that type of thing. And, you know, with a more injectable type of cosmetic practice. And then, you know, I just sort of nurtured those people and created great relationships. And that turned into a sort of a more mature type of cosmetic practice.
0: So what are the procedures that you focus on the most?
1: Yeah, so I still love doing Mo surgery and skin cancer reconstruction. That's what I'll always do and I love and you know, it's very foundational. Those types of reconstructions make you better at cosmetics because you're, you know, dealing with things that you didn't create in the first place. They're not the depth or the location or the shape that you want them to be. And you have to sort of be creative and make things work based off of your knowledge of tissue and movements. And, you know, there's a bunch of nerdy surgical stuff you can talk about with that, but that's always been the sort of the foundation. But as far as aesthetics, I really like sort of pan-facial or just looking at the whole sort of, you know, neck-up area as one unit and saying, okay, here's the things that have changed. You've had Sun damage or you have these little genetic things that are happening with you and usually using combinations of things like whether that's laser and volume from fat or filler or small minimally invasive type of surgical things that may involve lifting or eyelids. But I'd be happy for the rest of my life if I were only doing lasers and eyelid surgery or something like that. You know, I really like to dive deep instead of wide on those things.
0: What was the first laser that you ever bought?
1: First laser I ever bought was a fractional CO2 resurfacing laser workhorse.
0: Did that feel like a big risk at the time? Taking the plunge and spending that money to get that?
1: Yeah. Anytime you buy a device, it's a big upfront investment. And depending on your salesperson, I guess they always tell you, oh, your ROI is going to be this. You're going to pay it off in two months by doing five of these a day. But you know, in real in reality, you have to look at what you're doing and how that's going to fit in. And for me, that resurfacing laser was a perfect fit because it really is foundational to all the other types of procedures I do. I rarely do surgery without doing resurfacing at the same time.
0: Do you remember what your approach was to marketing it back then when you got it? How did you go about doing that?
1: Yeah, it's a super good question. And I think I've taken a little outside the box or a little different type of paradigm with my marketing in general. I don't market any device or product or anything like that ever. I market myself, basically. I want people to see me for me, not for, say, Botox or Disport or Juveau or this brand of CO2 laser. I want them to come see me and create this relationship and sort of move forward from there that here's what I have to offer, here's what I can do. It doesn't really matter what product or device we choose to do it, that you know, it's really the driver, not the car, if you will.
0: So if the brand is you, how would you describe that brand?
1: Ooh, good question. You know. I am my own brand, I guess. And so it's kind of a funny question to say, like, I guess it's saying, like, describe yourself and what you like in practice. But, you know, like I said, I really like to be holistic in my approach. And that's, I think that's a little cliche to say to some degree, but I think about everything. I think about emotion and personality in the types of treatments that I'm doing. And I really like to be innovative. And again, that's sort of a buzzword or cliche a little bit, but I truly do like to do different things and try out different, Techniques, ideas, and they're always little small, subtle tweaks of something I'm already doing, some little small change that I think may have a nice benefit for this patient. And as you do this over time, they evolve into mainstays of your practice or whole new facets that you can build off of from there. You know, that's how I like to approach, I guess, a, a new relationship in general is with that sort of what are your goals? Here's what we can do. You know, you chose me for a reason. What was that reason? And let's sort of move forward from there.
0: What do they say when you ask them why they chose you?
1: It's all over the board a little bit. It changes as social media and real self and things like that get in. Those actually make it a lot easier for those people to find you and choose you. And they often know you pretty well, or at least the you, quote unquote, you that you've put out there to be you. And I was kind of teased with this on social media that that's the image you put forward. In real life, I'm yelling at my two-year-old not to get nail polish on the floor, but I'm not putting that on Instagram, right? You know, And so they, they have this perception of you that they've created based off your social media, or your real self-profile. And so I try to make that as, again, cliche, authentic as possible. And that that's true. If you look at my social media, it's my kids and my wife and myself and exercising and before and after photos. And by doing that, I feel that I've got nothing to hide or you know, there's already some relationship created there and that you know what you're getting when you show up in the door.
0: Have you been thoughtful at all about how much of your family and your personal life you'll put on Instagram?
1: I have, and I see where people are much more restrictive about that. And I have colleagues who will put their kids on there behind their faces and things like that. And I understand that. I don't do that. They're my kids. They're the biggest part of my life. They influence a lot of decisions that I make, and I have them on there. And it's, like I said, that authenticism is, you know, it's real for me. It's, you know, like I said, it is my family and it's before and after photos and it's me doing workouts or stretches or whatever I'm doing with my colleagues and my things that we do together. And I kind of like to run these series in my social medias of whether it's like biohacking, something that's like a little personal passion of mine. But I think all those just sort of show interests of yours and things that you like to do. And, you know, like I said, it I am my own brand. I want the people to choose me for me, not, again, for that device or product, and it's the best way to really get it across beforehand.
0: You've gotten to about 15,000 followers on Instagram, which is respectable. Are you doing all that Instagram yourself, or is someone helping you?
1: I've always done it all myself, and I've played with different degrees of just having people kind of help put it out there uh, as far as you know getting it scheduled or things like that but actually I am 100% hands on with my own Instagram which is a blessing and a curse and I learned at least in my type of social media that I don't put specials or random pictures or quotes I don't really do that it's again it's going to be probably a before and after picture some video of a new procedure that we're trying or you know what I'm up to and Nobody else can do that. Nobody else can get in your brain. And even with my before and after photos, nobody can explain what I was thinking or what I was going for, what the relationship was with the patient beforehand. Like, oh, this patient is a mom of three and that alters what you're going to do because their downtime is different or whatever it may be. And so I've kind of always just done it myself. And, you know, I have colleagues who have way more Instagram followers or fewer or do things differently. And they put a lot of time and effort into it and do a really great job. And that's what their brand is centered around a lot of times. I haven't quite taken that approach. I kind of use it as a, this is partially a portfolio of what I do and what my aesthetic is because everybody's aesthetic is a little bit different. And here's who I am as a person and a dad and a surgeon and a boss and a colleague and all those types of things.
0: It sounds like you really enjoy working with your before and after photos. Will you give us a little window into how you take them and edit them and then bring them to life on the internet? Because I noticed you have quite a few both on Instagram and your real self-profile on your website that really represent the depth and the breadth of the work you do. So I'm curious about that.
1: Yeah, there's photos themselves you get better at doing over time. I've learned at least, or I have. And that some of that is standardization and some of that is style. And again, this is another thing. Like I take all of my own photos. It's not farmed out to a staff member. Even if it was a super skilled staff member, I want to do it myself. I look at it, honestly, is that it's kind of an awkward moment where you're engaging with your patient and so it's kind of a fun silly thing to break through and laugh and that it's a good sort of icebreaker a little bit if you will because you know that if photos are getting taken something really fun is about to happen in general and so I take them all myself of course you get better at your standardization of lighting and positioning and those things and so that's something that's just developed over time and so like many people would probably say I'm pretty anal about them if you will I want them to be perfect and represent what's actually happening because if you show somebody a before and after, that's different positioning or lighting, it's not going to represent what you can do for the good or sometimes making it worse, sometimes making it better. And so that's how I get the photos themselves. And then there's the question of how do you get people to use them and say yes. And I have a lot of photos out there, but I have far more patients that aren't comfortable with me using them. And so there's plenty, I would just love to show the world, but you can't do that. And that's like the most important advice I give anybody starting out is take really good photos from the get-go, from day one. It doesn't matter if you're doing the most perceived simple procedure you're ever doing. Take good photos before you'll have this protection for you. It shows the patient what happened afterwards. And then respect those photos, encrypt them, make it so nobody can ever find them. Don't use them without permission, obviously. And the way that I approach it with my patients is, you know, your photos are great, would you mind if I ever showed them to anybody? And I do that in three capacities. Number one is in office consultations where they never leave this room or this door. And number two would be for conferences or talks where I'm giving lectures and it may be in Europe, it may be in Seattle or Chicago somewhere, but you know, where it's not around other people who are likely to see you and it's just on a conference board. Then the third one would be sort of for sort of marketing or social media purposes. And you just kind of never know what people are going to say. And I kind of educate them on the choice they've just made once they do it. You know, like, yeah, you're fine to use them anywhere. I'm like, okay, I will probably put your photos on Instagram. Is that okay? Yeah, sure. Or, oh, maybe not that. Maybe you just show them in the office. And so I like to make sure everybody's really up to speed on what's going to happen so there's no surprises there. And again, I learned that lesson hard early on where people had given me permission to use their photos. And then when I put them up. They then later asked to have them taken down because feedback or they didn't think that many, a lot of times it's like, I didn't know that many people followed you. You know, my friends are now saying something to me. And uh, that's the most common scenario. So I tell them like, you know, tens of thousands of people will see these photos if we put them up. Are you okay with that?
0: One thing we're seeing on social media a lot right now is influencers and people who are really interested in looking overfilled or... They seem to almost have body dysmorphic disorder. I can't figure out how they're, why do they think that they look good like that, but that also who's doing this to them and why is this happening?
1: I think there's a lot of layers to that really. And it's, you know, how does that happen in the first place? Why is that happening? Who's perpetuating all those? And it's an interesting demographic that you mentioned actually that, you know, sort of like millennial group, you know, more so than older because it really happens everywhere. And that idea has gained a name now of like pillow face, which is an interesting concept where people's faces are getting a little puffy and overfilled. And I think that on some level, social media plays a role. And I think that on others, it probably doesn't. And it's, you know, an independent type of thing. And I think there's some core of us that wants to be, very average because in general, if we were to say this idea of quote-unquote beauty, beauty tends to be like average features down the board with maybe a couple outliers, like maybe especially big eyes or curly hair or strong jaw and whatever. But for the most part, people's features are very sort of down the mean to be beautiful. And so maybe there's some like deep driven thing to sort of look like each other a little bit. And you see that in sort of tribal cultures and things like that too. Everybody wants to sort of look the same. People tend to be attracted to people that look like them in general. And that is true for not just like physical attraction, but or mates and things like that, but even just like friends and doctors and patients. And there's all kinds of interesting things that, you know, sort of look at this. You tend to sort of, there's some internal recognition that happens there. And, you know, social media definitely contributes. You see a lot of photos on, say, Instagram or whatever it may be that's lips. Great. It's a set of lips. There's no context to chin, jawline, nose. It's just lips. And what are lips supposed to, quote unquote, supposed to look like? Nobody's the same. Nobody should be the same. But you start to like, oh, that's what good lips look like. That's what I want to have. And I think that happens in offices where people show up with this idea and you know what? People are so good at filler now and filler is, our choices are so broad that we can make that happen. A lot of times you can do what this image is in front of you. And people in general are driven to please patients and be doers. And I have this incredible skill set, you know, that I can help you do this and let's let's accomplish your goal. But then you have to sort of step back and look on this global level of, Am I doing this patient a real favor? Is it my place to tell them what they should and shouldn't want? And, you know, I think that's very individualized. And I don't think that, you know, I don't think the motivation is necessarily people trying to make money or further themselves. I think a lot of times it's just driven by like, I can make you happy, you know? That's, we practice, the royal we, I think, of cosmetic physicians. And I think that we practice to number one, of course, be happy ourselves. That should be one of our main goals. And to make other people happy and whatever that looks like. And so, if you can do it, sometimes it's hard to not because maybe the girl at your Orange Theory class is like pumped and she loves them and she's like, I look great. I'm happy. You know, I don't know.
0: But well, I hope so. Yeah, it's really her yeah, exactly. choice. And
1: the, yeah. I
0: mean, truthfully, that's what real self is all about is making your own choices and being confident in how you look.
1: Yeah, it's And there's like some really cool things that, you know, real self could look at her. Be kind of a fun little piece, but just on the evolution of beauty over time, like what the norm of, of a beautiful person, woman, man, anything looks like. And it's changed a lot through even decades. It changes pretty quickly.
0: Think about eyebrows. Right. Just eyebrows.
1: Eyebrows, body habitus, you know, all kinds of things change frequently. And so maybe this we're on the front end of a, a little curve here of adaptation. Who knows? But again, it's it's a tough thing. And For me, personally, I try to educate as to, you know, sort of here's where you're at and here's what we're looking like. And I, again, I practice to be happy too. And I am not happy personally when I have patients who look what I perceive, personally perceived to be unnatural. That's not the overall truth that you look unnatural. It's just my perception, their perception, maybe they look great. And that's probably just not a patient that is for me. And it's probably better to not go down that road anyway. You know, it's a dead end.
0: Do you have to turn people down then sometimes?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah and that, that's an art, and it's hard to do, especially, like I said, early on in your career. I'm, I would still say I'm very, very long in my career. I'm still on the up as far as learning what to do and learning techniques and how to deal with people and all those things. And you, But you learn that, how to say no, and there's different ways to do it. Sometimes it's a direct like education. Sometimes you realize that that direct conversation is going to do more harm than good. And you find maybe a more passive way around it. Just saying like, maybe we're just not the right fit. It's not you. It's not me. We're just not the right fit. Uh, However you go about doing that. But I would say more often than not, I take an attempt to educate, I think a little bit. And if that's not well received or there's disagreement or, you know, it's like no hard feelings, like let's move on. But more often than not, people come to a realization that they look unnatural or that they're overfilled and most of the time I'm seeing those patients it's because they're seeking correction more so than they just show up wanting more filler. I, I that happens of course, but it I'd say that's more rare than people having some insight to like and maybe your orange theory let's use this pretend person at orange theory maybe she comes in and you know she's happy and great and but the second you say something she's like I kind of wondered if that wasn't the case a little bit but they don't know any better, you know, they compare themselves to whatever shapes their paradigm, whether that's Instagram or their friends, and then all of a sudden you bring it to their attention and they have a new influence on this paradigm and they say, oh yeah, I kind of thought that. You're right. Yeah, let's, I'm, I'm open to making this look more natural or fix it or whatever.
0: There's a practice in Austin where I live that's got a widespread reputation for overfilling. Oh. And people know that. And then when they actually go in, the entire staff has the same look too. Uh-huh. And so it's sort of like it feeds on itself. Sure. If you want to look like that, you know that you go there, that's spot. and then there's more of them and more of them. But they're also damaging their brand because people who don't want to look like that don't think they can go there now either. Yeah, but are they?
1: Maybe that's you know. Well, I don't know. I know it's a it's a hard some of those hard things because maybe a little bit like we just talked about, people want to treat patients that look like them. And people probably want to get treated by people that look, you know, and so it it is a little bit self-perpetuating, right? And again, from an outside perspective, if that's not your aesthetic, you say they're hurting themselves, but maybe that's what they want. I want people that look like you. There's a very prominent injector in Australia who has a really strong social media following and her jam, her brand, her everything is making people look like dolls or whatever they want to call it. It's like, that's her thing. And there's no shyness about it. There's no anything. It's like, this is what I do. You know, it's definitely eye-catching and intriguing, at least. And that's it. And there's no... That's what she wants to build. Those are the kind of patients she wants, and she does a really good job of it. And so, from my point of view, it's like, that's not my aesthetic. I don't really like that, but I'm still intrigued. And on the flip side of that, I wouldn't send my spouse to this person for lip filler, but they're really busy and they're happy. And, you know, and so it's, it's interesting. So you, you see those practices and I don't know that they're doing anything wrong. They're just doing things that's different than the way you do it. And that's maybe one of the beauties of the industry in the world is that it maybe get gets, a, I see that because I've, in my demographic is, well, that gives it a bad reputation. Like I see people who look funny. And it's like, well, they didn't come from here. Here are my before and after photos that you've probably already seen before you came in. And that's why you're here is because, You mine don't look like that. And that's a strong part of real self is that I find myself showing a lot fewer before and after photos in consultations because that's how people are finding you in the first place. They're looking at what you've done. Of course, that's the smartest thing to do. Like look at what the person's done and say, I love this look. And then that's how they show up. And so I'm trying to like sometimes encourage them, like, hey, can I show you some photos? And at least maybe, I know you've already seen them or seen some, but let's explain how you fit into this you know, which ones look like you or what the type of things I would do are. And so I think that, that helps the uh, shift a perception.
0: So you're seeing some correction come in from other places. You're also in a really interesting part of the world, geographically speaking, because you're on the border of Washington and Idaho, where the laws are very different between those two states. And so what's happening in Idaho that is sometimes then crossing over to see you to be fixed?
1: Yeah. And so I mean, I'm an Idaho boy, grew up there, lived there, uh, travel across the border to work in Washington. Washington's much more strict and who can do injections and aesthetics there. Idaho is a different story, like you're saying. And that, you know, meaning that an aesthetician can inject and many do in Idaho, right across the border. And they inject filler and there's no, you know, of course, no restrictions on where they can put it. They use it off label and What people might call high risk areas. We know that everywhere is high risk, but maybe more especially high risk areas. And it's an interesting thing because I do get fixes for those things, but I get fixes for everything. That's sort of one of my roles in our community is as a referral center. And hyaluronidase might be my most injected product of all things. And that's not bad. It's just how it is. And it's not always bad work sometimes it's just patient perception of the work that they got but you know working across from idaho the skill sets are different even just with you know maybe great lip filler but there was a area where it was overfilled and they got a bump or they're asymmetric or something simple like that i don't think there's any malicious intent to it or most of these these say esthetician injecting they're working for a core physician they're working under a a dermatologist or a plastic surgeon or something like that and so it's not that they're just set up a shop and started doing it. They're under people who should know and have the training and things like that. And so the skill sets are just different. And every new injector goes through that learning curve a little bit, but you just see that more frequently because turnover's higher and you know those skill sets sort of tend to remain lower there.
0: On this podcast, we ask everyone, what's your superpower? And I'm curious what you think yours is. You already know what mine is, so. Yeah, seeing it's patterns, that's a
1: good one. My superpower, I would say my superpower is... If I were to give the short answer, it'd be like bringing out the best in people and on a more elaborate answer that sort of is like really helping people see what they're capable of and helping them hopefully reach that potential. And I think on layers, that includes myself in that. And that includes people that I'm around and my kids and my staff members and my wife. And I think that that's happened for me for a long time from... When I was a kid playing sports, sometimes it was like helping people physically just be the best part of the team they could be. I think that was academic for me in college, where I was a collegiate athlete. It was that was definitely my role on the team with my teammates. Academically, was you're a lot smarter than you think you are, and you can take this class that you because you're a quote unquote jock have been told this is going to be difficult for you. It's not if you you know sort of have that mindset that you can do it and. Put your head down and I try to use that now in a very career fashion with my fellows and my colleagues and you know residents or med students who I'm around. I try to give them the real deal about what's happening and what they're capable of and it happened for me in residency and fellowship at UCLA my mentor there I kind of always teased him he had me drink the kool-aid I went in thinking that I was pretty good and could do a lot and he showed me that I could do more and it was true and I owe a lot of my career and mindset about that to him. But it's always been part of me. It's just something that I think I've sort of realized and understood more as I've gotten older and actually as as I've become a dad.
0: Thank you for sharing your stories and your wisdom with us today.
1: Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to the Real Self University podcast. The mission of Real Self is to create a world where every investment in modern beauty is worth it. And the mission of Real Self University is to help aesthetic professionals do just that. If you'd like more information about becoming RealSelf Verified, go to realself.com slash network and enter referral code podcast to receive preferred rates. I'm your host and producer, Eva Shea. Our post-production is by Daniel Cruiser. If you'd like to be a guest on the RealSelf University podcast, have feedback or questions, email university at realself.com. Support us and help keep this effort going by subscribing to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All of our learning and practice development resources are available on demand at university.realself.com.